Yeah. And then I go into a place and they scan my QR code. I don't scan their QR code. It's it's the COVID-19 scanning yeah, system in reverse. what if I don't buy anything? You get the f*** out so, of my uh, store. So David Cunliffe remains about as popular in the Labour caucus as a pussycat at Gareth Morgan's house. Look, this is a la-la budget when my eyebrow goes up. It's a joke. The police still arrest criminals in New Zealand. We've tried cannabis prohibition for the past 40 years. The fact is, that was a boring, useless speech. Sip it, sweetie, I'm getting there. Mr. Speaker, they say a week is a long time in politics. Hello and welcome back to the Iron Duke podcast, our weekly recap of all things policy and politics, where we run you through our peaks and our pits, interesting bits and anything that fits from Aotearoa and around the globe. I am Maddie Burgess-Smith and with me is Senior Consultant Byron Terrace. Byron, hello. Maddie, it's great to be with you uh, for another week of the Iron Duke podcast. Uh, later on, we're joined by the New Zealand Initiative Economists and Senior Fellow Bryce Wilkinson. Dr. Mm-hmm. Bryce Wilkinson is one of New Zealand's foremost economists over the last 30 years. And he's got a brain the size of Texas and the UK put together, plus a little bit of Russia thrown in there. This guy's seriously brainy. Yes, I'm a bit of a fanboy. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's a weird geography analogy. It is. It's just big, really. It's We're going also going to cover off some stuff around the Productivity Commission's report, the traffic light system in uh, Auckland again today. We're also going to talk about vaccine passports and... Today's protest. Today's protest. Today being uh, Tuesday. We have actually debated whether or not to talk about it, but we do think it's we think it's relevant given yeah. state of the nation. State of the nation. I'm just going to wade straight into that, but we've got to start with something good. So, Maddie, kick us off with your peak of the week. My peak of the week is the fact that we are returning to the next normal. We are through the twilight zone, and how do we know that? Because vaccine certificates are being rolled out. It's important to distinguish the difference between a vaccine certificate and a vaccine passport. Mm. Now, it's very much what is in the title. Vaccine passport is going to allow us to travel. Mr. Worldwide, we're back. We're a little way away from that. Vaccine certificates, however... Uh, are being rolled out this week. So tell me how they work, Maddie. A vaccine certificate is the reverse of what we've got now. You become the QR code. I'm the QR code. It's not tattooed on you. Why not? Um, I think there'd be more than just a protest if we were tattooing. That's a good point. So tell me about certificates. What's the difference? Certificates are the reverse of what we currently have. So currently, you're rocking into a shop with your phone and you're scanning a QR code. With a vaccine certificate, you are the QR code. So you carry a QR code with you in your app and the proprietor... The, staff, the employee. The, the employee, staff the staff member, the waitress, I don't know. Right, they, they scan your certificate. It's taken us a really long time to get here. The one thing that does have me concerned is it has been a closed tender process and we all know of a couple of really innovative solutions that have been out there for a while. Other countries have had vaccine certificates for a while. Mm. But I think it's, it's long overdue. Just a little bit about those uh, the company that's it, uh, got the tender though mm. it's uh, a little company called Matter M-A-T-T-R they spun out a spark they're kind of a Kiwi startup success story so at least it may have been it may have been a closed tender and we may not have uh, been as quick to the vaccine certificate as other countries but hey at least it's going to an unproven little startup somewhere around the country <laughs> yeah and look one thing that we've spoken about a lot throughout this whole pandemic piece is the fact that business has shown amazing leadership when yeah. the government has been slow to the ball yep. so you think about the number of places that you already know the number of New Year's festivals, the, no, the number of airlines, the airline, <laughs> Air Aotearoa, um, they've already rolled out You know their expectations around vaccine certificates, so I think we're ready to go, and this is, this is a case of the government playing catch-up, but hey, we're here. What's your peak of the week? Uh, my peak of the week is that uh, the announcement of the announcement that on November the 29th, the government will probably, almost certainly, quite specifically move to the red traffic light system for Auckland on that date. 
And so that's essentially uh, the the level two that uh, we outside of Auckland have. No one love. <laughs> no one love. We're out of Auckland, Hamilton and a couple of places in Northland, no one love. Uh, so essentially what that means is we can go back to hospitality venues with a with a limit and a cap and there'll be a requirement on vac- for the vaccine certificates that Maddie was talking about. There will be a number of restrictions placed on those who have, who aren't vaccinated. So that's going to be really Really interesting to see how that plays out and in reality. That looks like a test every week just about to live your life. It's a lot of brain swabs uh, and it's also going to be the brain swabs, uh, the rapid antigen testing, the small little spit ones that you know you can do yourself. They've really f***ed that up. Yeah, they've, oh, it's been a long time since they've actually been any innovation in New Zealand around testing. I mean, we, my heart goes out to the Reiko Science team and how long, yeah. how long it took them to get you know a PCR saliva test across the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that just was an example of us, us being laggards on the innovation front when it came to COVID-19. But here's a clip. Auckland is ticking off two milestones this week. Tomorrow the city moves to level three, step two, with 90% of its population having had their first dose of the vaccine. The 90% double vax target is within reach, and the Prime Minister has given her word things are going to change. So anyway, Maddie, what's your pit of the week? My pit of the week is is the Productivity Commission's report into into immigration. Now, before we get stuck into this, it's important to understand the political context of a lot of these really big commission reports, which will which will have an enduring effect on, on policy change. Mm. Maybe. Well, uh, if it's, if the low emissions economy report from twenty seventeen is anything to go on, they do <laughs> they do stick around for quite a while and do get referred to. So let's hope that this one doesn't have the same effect that that one did. Yeah. If it was going to be headlined in any way, it would be that immigrants have caused the housing crisis. Ouch. So Minister Grant Robertson commissioned this report, and and it's important to remember that that at that time, there was a real anti-immigration sentiment in New Zealand. House Mm. prices were on the rise. Mm. The report's now coming out at a time where I'd say that throughout COVID, we've realised the value of of those who make their homes here permanently or or those who just come here for three months. So we're now seeing some of the, the sharpest labour shortages in recent history. And right across right across the board as well. It, it doesn't really matter what, what sector you're in. There is a there is almost certainly going to be a labour shortage in your sector, which whichever one you're in. The crux of the report is the fact that you know the rapid increase in immigration from 2012 to 2020 is what has placed such a massive strain on infrastructure and housing in this country. It was really a blame game, and Phil, our boss in the office, put it really well today when we were discussing it um, as a as a trio. Um, Alvin and the Chipmunks, you could say. His take on on the report was, you can't come in because we haven't built enough houses for you to live in. And so who do you blame? And and the thing that's really angered me about this report is that all immigration reports, you, you look across the world, they all, they're all trying to answer the same question. Is it good or bad for productivity? Is it good or bad for wage growth? Is it is it good or bad for cultural synergies? They're all pretty binary in that, in that aspect. And, and this report answers none of those questions. It's it's really washy in that sense, but just focuses on the fact that, that the number of people that we've let in has been completely disconnected from infrastructure policy. Now, whose fault is that? That is the fault of the government. Well, it's a it's a mixture of things. If you framed the if if you framed it differently and said, "This is actually a report about infrastructure. This is actually a report about how infrastructure was right. unable to keep up with population growth, and that's a failing of our planning system rather than a failing of the immigration system." I mean, a lot of the criticism that I personally receive around uh, the immigration settings is you can't let them all in. Oh my goodness, there's just too many people. New Zealand's full. Well, it wouldn't be full if you just built a new house in that paddock over there that's got nothing in it. Wow. Yeah, I think the thing that made me really angry is the short-sightedness of it. Have you have you been on a construction site recently? The the solution to the problem 
is what they're calling the problem. Yeah, build more stuff. Yeah, so I think we're in one of the most divided New Zealands we've been in for a long time. And I think a report like this that points, you know, mm. New Zealand's largest wicked problem, which is housing, on uh, on on our immigrant community is poorly timed and and really short sighted. On that note, actually, the divided the divided New Zealand that actually brings me to my my pit of the week. Um, and although it, it's an interesting pit for me because uh, it was we, we didn't know if we were going to discuss this on the podcast today. We actually talked a bit about it, but it's the it's the lockdown protest today. Mm. It's the anti-vax protest today. It's the anti-government protest today. It's the th- anti-three waters protest today. It's all kind of wrapped into one that we saw go down Willow Street and Lambton Key here in, in Wellington. And I think we're you know we're a city that's very much used to protest. We're, we're, yeah, we we are. are the capital. We're the seat of government. You have the right to turn up here and have your voice heard, regardless of whether you're shouting, screaming, yelling. We're willing to lose our jobs over this. This is not right. Okay, we're going to stand our ground, and there's lots and lots of us with us. Okay, I'm a business. She wants to shut my business down, and she wants to give me the benefit. The worst thing for me is that I understand the anti-authority. Mm-hmm. sentiment. I understand that. We've seen it overseas. We have imported a little bit of it and there was one photo to me that just demonstrated how much we've imported this culture war. So in New Zealand, traditionally, anti-government sentiment has, you know, always turned up at Waitangi. Always mm-hmm. turned up at Waitangi. You know, it featured the Tino Rangatiratanga flag, it's featured the 1835 Confederation flag. Today, I saw both of those flags with a Donald Trump oh, MAGA okay. flag all sitting together with the same bunch of people. Yeah. And I thought, where have we got to? This is really, really interesting. I've got no problem with the protest itself. It was no one no one was hurt in the making of this protest, but it really just kind of showed a quite a confused narrative. And yeah. is this leading to a more divided New Zealand? Um, I really I really hope not. Um, but let's not let it let's not let it divide ourselves. And I've seen plenty of commentary from both sides of politics. Uh that have gotten pretty close to just labelling them as deplorables and they should never be listened to, these type of people. And I don't think that does much for the discourse. No, it doesn't. And the thing for me is you talk about the confusion there. Now, I saw people out there with prams and their kids who looked just like my mum. Mm. I saw people out there, um, yeah, sure, in gang patches and, and fully tattooed. There were so many subsections of, of New Zealand society out yeah. there today, all with a real discontent with something that's coming from the beehive at the moment. That's right, that's right. That that was the one thing that pulled them together. So the thing that I'm really aware of is when you call these people fools and idiots and, and deplorables, as you said, you've got to remember they've got an entirely different worldview to you. You know, fairly well, uh, well-to-do people, educated views with a, world, with a worldwide kind of vision can't actually put themselves into that worldview. They can't actually entertain the concept of where they come from. And I think, you know, you walked down Lambton Quay today and you saw a lot of people with lanyards from the ivory tower of Lambton Quay kind of scoffing at this sort of behaviour. Oh, yeah, totally. you know, How dare these people come to my city? Yeah, these are crazy people. Well, look, you, you celebrated when young kids were out marching for climate change because that was the thing that people were passionate about. It's a part of being a civil society where, yeah. where you've got a democratic right to be heard and sure, you may not agree with it. Look, if, frankly, if throwing... Yeah. If thro- if throwing tennis balls at Parliament is the worst that we're going to get in New Zealand, not only have we dodged a bullet for COVID deaths, I think we've dodged a bullet for civil disobedience and violence. <laughs> I think you're right. The fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic and there's been a mass vaccine rollout and the government has taken this proactive step to keep people safe by mandating the vaccine, that is one of the most unique situations a society will ever be in, right? 
Well, respect the voices of others. That's our takeaway of the day. the voices of others. So what might be coming next? What might be coming in the future? Are we going to face another global financial crisis? Bryce Wilkinson is joining us soon. Let's hear from him. Uh, welcome, Bryce. Uh, Dr. Bryce Wilkinson here for a senior fellow from the New Zealand Initiative and one of the foremost economists of, in New Zealand for the last 30 years. So thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here and to talk about this topic. Brilliant. So the latest report from the New Zealand Initiative says how we're on the precipice, potentially, of another global financial crisis. So you just want to give us a little flavour of the report and just a small high-level summary? Yes, certainly. So the concern is about what the major uh, governments are doing in the most prosperous nations and their central banks. And the concern is that there's a sense of increasing desperation in what central banks are doing to try and keep asset prices up and their economies afloat. And many of their governments have been pumping up debt, their public debt, to sort of record peacetime, not wartime, but peacetime levels. And interest rates are so low that the cost of borrowing looks very attractive to them. But if that unwinds, things could get very, very nasty. And in the recent news, with inflation rates starting to creep up again in the US and the UK and Europe, it is possible that it's starting to unwind because the central banks are going to face a conflict that they haven't faced up till now. And the conflict is between their objective of keeping inflation low Mm. and what they want to do, which is keep interest rates low so that asset prices don't crash, Mm. the cost of government borrowing doesn't go skyrocketing, and the governments don't get into even bigger fiscal trouble than they've got. Pretty weird global situation. Are there similarities between now and, say, 2007, 2008, when we experienced the last global financial crisis? The, the biggest we concern we've got is that these central banks and their governments seem to be on a ratchet. So it's quite understandable that um, when they ran into the global financial crisis, uh, the banks were starting to fall over and collapse and mm-hmm. the governments rescued them. That was understandable. They rescued them by issuing a lot of public debt. Mm. And get, so they, they converted a banking crisis into a major public debt problem. Yeah. That's not the concern. The concern is that that wasn't unwound before COVID hit over over a decade later. So uh, we didn't have time, or they weren't fast enough, or what was what was the concern there? It's what we're calling a debt trap. The Federal Reserve did start to move to try and reverse this and lift its interest rates, ease back on its quantitative easing program around two thousand and seventeen. But share markets and and the bond market started saying, hey, if you do that, we're going to crash on you. And and this is the debt trap problem, that central banks are now really nervous that if they start to tighten up, they'll get the blame for the next crash, and they don't want that blame. At the same time, you know, governments are running big fiscal deficits. Staggeringly, the US federal government fiscal deficit is projected at over 16% of GDP at the moment. It's sort of unbelievable. And that's, the U- that's the US's GDP. That's the US, goodness. Yeah. They're that's in between a rock and a hard place, is what you're yeah, saying. that's right. So... Governments are reluctant to tighten up and reduce their deficits for fear, for the same reason that the banks are. They don't want to get the blame for a crash. So we're seeing this enormous pressure on Biden now 
to actually increase spending mm. by a few trillion here and there. Which he is. <laughs> which he, which uh, he's just, he's just got through here the, and there. It's just in your just back pocket. Got, he's got the infrastructure one through um, both houses of Congress. He's now trying to get the operating spending one. And we've been monitoring sort of US share broker reports to clients and they've all been saying sort of keep buying, the government will pump in a few more trillion if needed to keep asset prices up there. So that's the US. Europe looks even worse in a sense. You know, Italian public, Italy is one of the biggest economies in Europe, uh, probably too big for the European Central Bank to bail out if it went, went got into real mm. trouble. Its public debt is over 150% of GDP. Mm. When the European Union was formed, they had a Maastricht Treaty, and they all agreed there that for stability reasons, 60% public debt to GDP was max, mm. you know, and, and you had to be running fiscal deficits of no less than 3%. That's all gone by the board, really. Only seven of the 22 countries in Europe have their public debt ratios below wow. 60% of GDP, and they in good part, the Scandinavian countries. It's not Portugal and France and Italy and Greece. And, <laughs> and, and we know from everywhere in policy that we can't use them as a model. No, and uh, fortunately we're not. I should say at this point that New Zealand's not near, and nearly as bad a state. Mm. We've got still got positive um, public central government net worth relative to GDP. Mm. Um, these other countries have got negative net worth, except for Japan, which is about zero. But it's about zero where it was 100% of GDP positive mm. net worth before it ran into its rock and hard place around 1990, 1991. So everyone started on a different base. Yes, there are different experiences there. And... Even in Japan, which has got through holding these high debt levels now for two or three decades, it's still going through the mill. It, it still hasn't managed to rectify the situation and, and return either interest rates or public debt or, or public sector net worth levels to, say, in the 2006 mm. levels. So we're not seeing the end game yet, mm. and that's the scary thing. And the, the, the worry is that... The, the, the next decade will be a bit, little bit like the one between the GFC and COVID, that the authorities won't be able to store uh, normality in any sense before the next shock hits. Mm. Mm. So I suppose you're just treading water at that point. Yes, yeah. So that's, that's why there's grounds for alarm. Mm. And what do those grounds for alarm mean for everyday New Zealanders? What it means is... We should be prudent and careful about our own affairs, um, probably more so than we we have been. You know, a lot of the government spending hasn't been well justified mm-hmm. on cost benefit assessments. Um, tendency to throw money at, at problems without really analysing them through. Mm-hmm. So, um, but. But at the end of the day, we're, we're just a small sort of twig on the ocean waves here. And if the rest of the world does uh, suddenly stumble on this and have a big recession or worse, then it's going to hit us. We're a trading nation. It's mm. going to hit us through our export markets, import competing markets, and through our capital markets' mm. ability to borrow. So, so we're saying to people there there are grounds for alarm. We should be prudent. We should be cautious because this could be nasty. But 
No point in panicking because panicking makes no difference. And <laughs> mm, that the truth. So yeah. is, is there anything that our institutions here in New Zealand can do to kind of alleviate as much harm that might come from a, a, a new financial crisis? Yes, and, and as I've said, it's prudence. Uh, so government should be um, spending more wisely than mm. it, it seems to be. Um, we, we're having a bit of a debate with Treasury over a prudent level of debt. Um, Debate's probably a polite word. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the government and Treasury have substantially changed their position on, on those levels um, since, from where they were in 2019. Um, it looks a bit opportunistic. They're, they're saying, well, interest rates are really low, so it's okay. But what if interest rates don't stay low with, with rising inflation? Yeah. They mm. could go up again. That's um, a nominal interest rate, but that would hurt. Yeah. Um, we don't know what real interest rates will do, um, but they're very, very low. And um, unless you believe the world's fundamentally changed, things don't stay um, at their lows forever. They, they bounce up and down. So um, prudence is, is, is really important and not borrowing heavily to, to buy assets like houses, which are oh, swollen. Isn't sw- that the Kiwi dream? <laughs> yeah, mm. that's right. Swollen in price because our central bank's been sort of pumping as much liquidity, unprecedented liquidity, Do you into think the market. House yeah. prices more generally, could they fall? Well, I, I bought, we bought our first house in 1970s when Norm Kirk's government had inflated the price of houses up. And they fell, and they did in the UK, about 50% in real terms in the next decade. But they did it in a way uh, through inflation, yeah, you know, the stagflation yeah. of the 1970s. So it wasn't like what we saw in Ireland and the GFC where they'd overbuilt houses, mm. had massive estates of unoccupied houses, and house prices fell visibly. So if, and this is one of the scenarios we, we postulate in the report could happen, if we had a stagflation like in the 1970s, then real house prices would come down because everything else was going up and they wouldn't be coming down. That's, that's a possibility, but it's, it's only one of the possibilities. You, you could have a, a, a disinflationary cycle, which would be really, really nasty. Wow, that would be damaging mm. for New Zealand. Yeah. Bryce, that was brilliant. Was it? Yeah, that did we cheer you all up? That yeah. was. <laughs> I don't know about being cheered up, but I'm certainly much more of a realist now than when I went into this conversation. Bryce, to lighten things up a little bit, we're going to run you through a quick hot or not. Uh, we're going to give you a couple of topics, a couple of thoughts, a couple of themes. If you like them, give it a hot. If you don't, give it a not. The first one on my list, topical for today, Harley Davidson's driving through the Wellington CBD. Hot. Productivity Commission's report. Not. I've got some. I've got one. I'm pretty sure I know your answer to this one. Um, stagflation. Not sure. Uh, well, it's a not, isn't it? We don't want it. Uh, <laughs> uh, Auckland at level three point two. Not. And finally, from me, um, unemployment sitting at three point four percent. It's hot. Brilliant, Bryce. That was perfect. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. <laughs> Well, listeners, thank you for having joined us for another week on the Iron Duke podcast. We will be taking a break next week, our first scheduled break. That's right, and I'm not going to the Cook Islands this time. Oh, yeah. I get PTSD every time Byron talks about the Cook Islands. So in the Cook Islands, uh, as I you know, learned from my time there. If you say it one more time, I'm just going to crop it out. <laughs> I'm just going to cut it out. <laughs>
<laughs> you mentioned the one, one time you went to the Cook Islands. Yeah, yeah, that time when I was in the <laughs> islands. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we'll see you in two weeks. And thank you so much for listening.